Um, I'll have the scrapple, I said. The waitress glanced at the fist-sized bruise on my arm, then at Mike. I nodded. She jotted on her pad. Coffee. Mike thrust the menu at the waitress. Black. The waitress disappeared into the kitchen. Through the swinging doors, I saw her hand my order to the cook. He read it, then looked out at me. Eye contact. A small nod. What even is Scrapple? Pork bits. Lips, nips, and assholes. The cook emerged from the kitchen. He approached Mike from behind, meat cleaver in hand. Mostly assholes. At its core cannot exist without fear. We long to be frightened. We desire a glimpse into the darkness. We conjure creatures and monsters, all the while knowing deep in our souls. The terror is out there. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Comfort food can be good for the body and soul. But as the saying goes, you might not want to know how the sausage gets made. That's what we learned from author Warren Benedetto, from the tale which was this episode's cold open. Scrapple, performed by Aaron Lillis and Graham Rowett. I'm sure all of you are loving the Christmas music that's bombarding your ears these days. Rudolph, Frosty, Mariah Carey, you can't get enough, and you just love it. However, if you want something more, well, let's say, un-Christmassy to listen to these days, I have two recommendations. The first is from a man whose music you know and love. Our very own maestro, Brandon Boone, has recently released the soundtrack he wrote for the series This Book Will Kill You, a great album of dark and intense music which perfectly matched the tone of that amazing story. Well worth listening to with the lights off. The second recommendation is from another member of the No Sleep team, but not someone you might expect. Our very own Dan Zapula has recently released an excellent album of original tunes called With All That I Know Now. With rock-pop roots and thoughtful lyrics, you'll discover that Dan isn't just a talented voice actor and podcaster, he's also a gifted songwriter and singer. Check the show notes to learn more about these two great projects, or search for them wherever you find your music these days. It's a good thing to do, so be good for goodness sake. And now, our stories are starting. You'd better not leave. Our tales are quite true if you want to believe. In our first tale... 
we meet two young friends. And a friend is definitely what Xavier needs to help cope with his alcoholic father. And in this tale, shared with us by author K.G. Lewis, we learn that Ricky is willing to do whatever it takes to make things right. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Kyle Akers, and Dan Zapula. So be there for your buddy whenever you're needed. After all, that's what friends are for. I rolled over and looked at the Death Star-shaped clock on my bedroom wall again, one of the many Star Wars-themed gifts I'd received that year. There weren't any numbers on the face of it, so it took me a moment to figure out what time it was. If I was reading it correctly, it was 11.59pm. Time to go, I said to myself, throwing off the covers and swinging my legs out of bed. Even though it was late and I'd been lying in my room for several hours, I was fully dressed. The only thing I didn't have on were my shoes, which were sitting on the floor next to the bed where I could slip them on quickly. I kept my clothes on because I wanted to make as little noise as possible when I snuck out of the house. I couldn't risk my parents catching me. If they did, it would ruin everything my friend Xavier and I had planned. After I'd put my shoes on, I crept over to the bedroom door and placed my ear against it, listening to see if I heard anyone out in the hall. As late as it was, I didn't expect to hear anyone, but I wanted to be sure before I opened the window. The window wasn't as quiet as I'd like, but it was the quickest and easiest way out of the house. If one of my parents were out in the hall when I opened it, they'd surely hear me. Satisfied that the coast was clear, I walked over to the window, unlatched it, and slowly began to push it up. Once it was open, I waited a minute to see if my parents had heard me. When neither of them appeared, I climbed outside into the backyard. Xavier's house was next door, so I didn't have far to go. After hopping over the fence between our yards, I ran over to the patio door that led into his basement. I knocked lightly on the door. It's me, Xavier. Open the door. Hurry before somebody sees me. He promised that he would be waiting to unlock the door for me at midnight. That was the time we'd agreed upon. Somewhere in the neighborhood, a dog barked. The sudden noise startled me enough that I almost went running back home. The only thing that stopped me was the sound of the deadbolt being unlatched. I didn't wait for Xavier to open the door. I grabbed the knob and let myself in, closing the door quickly and quietly behind me. You came? Yeah, of course I came. I gave him an exasperated look. I said I would, didn't I? Xavier nodded and gave me a weak smile. I'm glad you did. But you didn't have to. I wouldn't have been upset if you changed your mind. I'm not changing my mind. It's about time somebody did something about your dad. I could feel my anger rising as I spoke. My mom left. A couple days ago. What? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Why didn't you tell me? Xavier dropped his head and shrugged his shoulders. I guess I didn't want you to feel sorry for me. And I figured she'd come back like she always does. She will come back for me, won't she? I shook my head. I don't think she will. I think she's gone for good this time. 
I felt terrible saying that to him, but it was the truth. Xavier's mother wasn't a much better parent than his father. She'd run out on them more times than I could remember, only to return a week later. But this time was different. This time I was absolutely sure she wasn't coming back. He kept his eyes on the floor as he spoke. You're probably right. Where's your dad? I asked, trying to keep Xavier from moping. If he retreated into himself, I didn't think I'd be able to follow through with her plan. It's his fault she's gone, I reminded him. Where he usually is. That meant his dad was passed out in the living room recliner, having drunk himself into a stupor. I walked over to the stairs leading out of the basement. Let's go. When I reached the landing at the top, I stopped and waited for Xavier to catch up, then pushed the door open a crack. Careful. Nobody's cleaned the kitchen in a couple weeks. I can tell. I scrunched up my face as the smell of rotten food wafted over us. But that wasn't what Xavier was warning me about. He was warning me about the minefield of discarded beer cans and bottles that littered nearly every available space in the kitchen, including the floor. If I accidentally knocked one over, it could start a chain reaction that would surely wake his dad up. I eased the door open far enough for me to squeeze through, hoping there weren't any cans or bottles behind it as I did so. Thankfully, there weren't. Where is it? In my parents' room. As quickly and quietly as I could, I walked over and around all of the cans and bottles on the kitchen floor until I made it to the hallway. Even though it was after midnight, most of the lights in the house were still on. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been able to make it out of the kitchen without bumping into something. Make sure he's still asleep. If his dad happened to get up to go to the bathroom or grab another beer and see me while I was walking down the hall, he'd call my parents, and then I'd never get another chance to help Xavier. I waited just outside the kitchen while Xavier crept over to the living room and peeked his head around the corner. A moment later, he looked back and gave me a thumbs up, confirming that his dad was still asleep. Keep watch, I mouthed at him as I pointed my finger in the direction of the living room. He nodded his head in understanding. Having spent a lot of time at Xavier's house, I already knew which room belonged to his parents and quickly made my way over to the appropriate door. Wait. I jumped and nearly pissed my pants. You scared the shit out of me. You're supposed to be keeping watch. I jabbed my finger in the direction of the living room. Sorry, I just forgot to tell you that he doesn't keep it loaded anymore. It was a good thing he told me that. An unloaded gun wasn't going to do me much good. Where does he keep the bullets? In the nightstand, next to the bed. The left one. Got it. I reached out and opened the bedroom door. Now go keep watch. Xavier nodded and ran back down the hall. As soon as I was in his parents' room, I walked around the bed and knelt next to it, reaching for the case that I knew was hidden beneath it. When my hands brushed against the handle, I grabbed it and pulled it out. The case was solid black and made out of thick plastic. Two large red clasps, also plastic, held it shut. There was a little hole behind the handle where you could insert a lock, but there wasn't one there now. While sitting on my knees, I laid the case on the bed, popped open the clasps, and lifted the lid. 
revealing a shiny silver revolver with a wooden hand grip nestled in a foam recess. My hand was shaking when I lifted the gun out of the case. Even though I'd held it in my hand before, it felt a lot heavier than I remembered. Looks like I'm really doing this. The weight of what I was about to do didn't hit me until that moment. I took a deep breath and slowly let it out, trying to calm my racing heartbeat. He deserves it, I reminded myself. I pushed the cylinder open with my thumb, checking to see if it was unloaded as Xavier had said. It was. After getting to my feet, I walked over to the nightstand, the one on the left side of the bed, and pulled open the drawer. Inside it was a bunch of junk, along with a couple boxes of ammunition. I opened the nearest box and took out six bullets, setting them on top of the nightstand. Feeling a bit weak in the knees, I sat down on the bed and put the bullets into the cylinder of the gun, my hands trembling the entire time. When I was done, I pushed the cylinder back into place and slowly stood back up. This is for Xavier. I held on to that thought as I walked down the hall and into the living room. You don't have to do this. I'll be fine. You call this fine? I scoffed at him, gesturing at the mess of dirty clothes and empty food cartons strewn about the room. In that mess, I was able to find an old notebook of Xavier's and a pen. I took both of them and tossed them onto his dad's lap where he was asleep in the recliner. That startled him awake with a snort. What's this? Mr. Reese fumbled to pick up the notebook to see what it was. I walked in front of him and raised the revolver, pointing it at his head. He didn't notice me until he heard the click of the hammer being pulled back. Ricky, what are you doing? He let the notebook fall back into his lap as he raised his hands to shield himself from the gun. I'm helping my friend. I don't understand. He started to slowly lower the seat rest of the recliner, intending to stand up. Stay where you are. I jabbed the gun in his direction to emphasize my demand. Okay. He let the seat rest return to its original position. During the entire exchange between his dad and me, Xavier just stood in the corner of the hallway watching us. Pick up the notebook and the pen. I gestured at Mr. Reese's lap with the gun. Why don't you lower the gun so we can talk about this? Pick them up. Okay. He grabbed the notebook in one hand and frantically searched for the pen with the other. Then he held them up for me to see. I picked them up. What do you want me to do with them? I want you to tell everyone what you did. I don't know what you're referring to. I couldn't tell if he was lying to buy himself some time or if he was actually that ignorant. What you did to Xavier. I looked over at my friend when I said his name. My eyes started to tear up as I was suddenly overcome with a strong feeling of grief. I didn't. Don't lie to me. I couldn't bear to hear him say he didn't do it. Xavier told me what really happened that day. Xavier told you? He looked at me like I'd grown a second head. You know that's not possible, Ricky. Why don't you tell me what this is really about? He did tell me. If you don't believe me, ask him yourself. I gestured at Xavier. He's standing right behind you. Mr. Reese slowly turned his head and looked towards the hallway. 
There's nobody there. You know he can't see me. It doesn't matter. I steadied the gun with both of my hands and aimed it at the center of his father's forehead. He is still gonna tell everyone what he did. Okay, what do you want me to write? Write, I did it. The police will know what you're referring to. He quickly wrote in the notebook the three short words taking up most of the page. Like this? He held the notebook up for me to see. That's perfect. I took a step towards him. Now set it on your lap. He set the notebook in his lap and then set the pen on top of it, looking up at me. Now what? It took me three quick steps to walk over to the recliner and place the gun against his temple. Once he realized what I was about to do, he reached up and grabbed a hold of the revolver, but he was too late. I was already applying pressure to the trigger. I closed my eyes and turned away as the gun roared to life in my hand. A second later, something warm and wet splattered across my arm and the side of my face. Time seemed to stand still, freezing me in place. You need to finish this and leave. I was so out of it that I hadn't realized that Xavier had been yelling at me for some time, trying to get through the paralysis that had taken hold of me. I looked down at the gun in my blood-spattered hand and relaxed my fingers, letting it fall to the floor. They're going to know you shot him if you don't stage things like you planned. I barely remember what happened next. All I know is that Xavier had to repeatedly coax me to wipe my fingerprints off the gun before putting it in his father's hand, making it look like he had committed suicide. Thanks. I acknowledged his gratitude with a weak smile, even though I felt sick to my stomach. What do you think is going to happen to you now? Xavier shrugged. Hopefully, I'll be able to move on to whatever comes next once everyone knows the truth. The truth being that Mr. Reese accidentally shot Xavier during an argument with his wife. He didn't know Xavier was standing nearby watching the fight when he fired a warning shot to intimidate his wife. A shot that struck Xavier, killing him instantly. Not wanting to go to jail for what he'd done, he staged the scene to make it look like Xavier was playing with a gun and accidentally shot himself. He threatened his wife, making sure she went along with the story. Xavier showed up at my house the day after his funeral and, and told me all of this. And as his best and only friend, I vowed to help him in any way I could. I guess this is goodbye then. I guess it is. When you lose someone close to you, the adjustment period can be extremely difficult. Grief and loss are heartbreaking. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alexa Simpkins, we meet a woman who still feels deeply connected to her deceased husband in very tangible ways. Performing this tale 
are Nicole Goodnight and Graham Rowett. So learn to grieve and move on, even without your beloved Hal. It had been three months since he died. The road to recovery is long and hard, and in this case, also unsuccessful. No matter how much morphine the hospice nurse gave him, he was still in pain. The cancer latched onto every organ it could and would not release its literal death grip on him until every last bit of life was gone. My Hal, who once gave me strength, needed mine. His rich chocolate brown eyes morphed to a flat hard brown. His strong tan arms got more brittle with each week. His smile, once his most notable feature, shrank from a grin to a smirk to a flat line. The man I knew and loved faded before my eyes, and in this one solitary moment in the middle of the night, I yearned for his touch more than I ever had since his passing. You can imagine my surprise when I felt it. A cool, thin hand reaching around the covers to find mine as lonely sobs escaped my lips. I gasped when I felt it, then recoiled and turned on the light. Nothing there. Good lord, I scolded. Get a grip. Grief can make you do weird things. Imagine things, even. It can make you want things, too. So the next night, body racked with mournful cries, I found myself wishing again to feel his hand, bony and pale from months of withering away. It would have been nicer to feel his strong, reassuring hand. But his hand in any form was comforting to me nonetheless. I reached my hand out and heard a stirring from the edge of the bed. There was his hand again, reaching across the endless sea of sheets and blankets. I gripped it and squeezed. It squeezed back. After a quick inhale, I glanced at the tall, standing mirror in the corner that faces my bed and closet. Reaching upwards from the depths of darkness under my bed, I saw a long, spindly arm twisting its way up the mattress to meet my own. I screamed when I saw it, but quickly stifled myself. Here was Hal coming back from whatever the hell the beyond was, maybe even hell itself, because God knows we did some crazy things in our youth to comfort me, to help me through my grief. And I was going to reject him because he appeared as he did in his last days to me? Would I dare insult him by being repulsed by his final form? No. So I squeezed his cold, bony fingers and fell asleep once more. Since the screaming incident, things have started to go sour. Jewelry that Hal gave me has slowly gone missing. I begged and pleaded to thin air for forgiveness that I had only been startled by his appearance, but I welcomed it nonetheless. It didn't matter. He still tried to erase the only parts of him that I had left. The night after this begging incident was the last straw. I lay in what was once our bed alone and inconsolable, but a thought struck my mind, and once I had realized it, my grief turned to anger. Our vows had set in sickness and in health, not in death and I had held up my end of the bargain by God. I had sat by his bedside and wiped every tear, given every sponge bath, spooned every last bit of food into his drying mouth. I would not stand for this punishment any longer. Hell, I breathed, and the hand snaked upwards once more. Seeing it in the reflection of my mirror gave me goosebumps, but I fought them and pounced off the bed. He started to recoil, but I was too fast. I leaped to the edge of the bed and looked under, daring to confront my husband one last time. I let out a blood-curdling scream. The specter was not my husband. In fact, he wasn't a specter at all. He was a man. A fully human, living, breathing man. 
and he looked at me as if I were the ghost myself. It has now been six months since Hal died, and it has been eight since the man came to live in our house unbeknownst to us. He lived in the crawl spaces, under the bed, in the attic, anywhere he could in order to keep to the shadows and live off of our backs. It was no wonder that Hal's morphine gave him no relief. This thief had replaced it with saline and taken the drug for himself. My jewelry had not gone missing due to Hal's ghostly wrath. It had been pawned at a shop down the street. When I was brought to court to testify against this monster, I had only one question for him. His deeds were selfish through and through and I could see motive in all except for one. Why? I demanded as handcuffs encircled his pale, bony wrists. Why hold my hand through the night from underneath my bed? He stared for a moment, then grinned wickedly at my ignorance as he answered. Your wedding ring was still on your finger. These days, driving long distances feels easy. None of those big paper maps to unfold and follow. No guessing which exit to take. We now have phones and apps which map our directions from door to door. But in this tale, shared with us by author M.J. Pack, we meet a woman who loses her GPS signal and discovers she has no idea how to get to her destination. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, and Jesse Cornett. So don't rely too much on technology. You might not find your way, even if it's not as far as you think. He was not someone I would normally ask for directions. Actually, in a normal situation, I would never ask for directions. I use my GPS because I don't trust my own sense of direction, even one little bit. But my phone had died, and when I went to plug the damn thing in, the little metal part that slides into your phone's port broke off, and I angrily threw the stupid cord out the window. So, essentially, I was lost. I just needed to get to Chicago before it got dark. The light was waning, setting the Illinois sky aflame with pinks and oranges. The thing about driving through Illinois is there's a lot of just flat, plain land. You can drive for almost a hundred miles on the same goddamn highway, looking at the same goddamn cornfields over and over, sometimes soybean fields, if you're lucky enough to get a break from the corn, and still not reach your destination. It can get very old, and it can make you tired. So I had no desire to drive down these long, straight, boring-as-fuck roads in the dark. Anyway, I had pulled off the highway into the parking lot of a little gas station. To say it was nothing special would be an understatement. The storefront was paneled with slats of wood where the white paint had peeled in places. There was a small square window to the left of the door, just next to a payphone, and I can't remember the last time I saw one of those. Above the door was what looked to be a handmade sign that read, 
open in carved-out letters. Behind the counter was an old man, one of those men who looks so old you think to yourself, how are you still alive? But not in a mean way, you know? Just kind of like, holy shit, you look like you belong in the ground. Sorry, I guess that was mean. It's not as far as you think. He moved his mouth around in the way that some old men do. His skin was leathery brown, and can you blame him? It's not like his generation warned him about the danger of skin cancer. They probably told him to put Crisco on himself to get a better tan. I heard that from my grandma. Okay, so I just get back on the highway? I glanced outside, sighed heavily, and looked back to him. And where do I go from there? I'm so sorry. I'm lost without my GPS. I appreciate the help. He smiled, revealing only a handful of teeth. Again, trying not to judge, but that's just the way it is. He had less teeth than the average person. Far less, in fact. Yes, Pumpkin. He said it like that, where he didn't pronounce the M-P and substituted an N. Pumpkin. Just hop back on the highway, drive straight down towards the sunset, and look for the signs. You'll find it. All right, I will. Thank you so much. I turned away from his counter and his mouth with very few teeth, and for a moment considered buying something just to make his effort worth his while, but then decided against it. Once I was in my car, I started the engine and felt the whole car rumbling beneath me. Oh, great. On top of being lost, now my car was acting up. I waited a moment to see if it would putter out or start smoking, but it didn't. The car just rumbled a little harder than normal. You have to understand, one of my major flaws is flying by the seat of my pants, and I just assumed I could make it to Chicago and get it checked out there. I definitely didn't want to stop at one of these little hick towns and have some grease-stained mechanic screw me over just because he could. I put my car in gear, pulled away from the little gas station, and got back on the highway, driving towards the sunset. As much as I hated the cornfields and soybeans, I did like the sunset. It reminded me of sherbet I used to eat as a child, all orange and yellow, and now purple. I drove for a while, hating the fact that I didn't have my phone to play music with. I hated driving in silence. I started fiddling with the radio. I hit mostly static, but then a husky-voiced woman started to sing, some song that sounded like it was out of the 1960s, with a lot of horns and percussion. Fuck, I guess this would do. Better than nothing at all. As I drove the long straightaway, trying to ignore the cornfields that had started to irrationally piss me off, Something on the side of the road caught my eye. A bright yellow knapsack, covered in odd patches that were too far away to see what they read or what pictures were stitched on them. I looked for road signs. I didn't see any, until a green sign loomed ahead of me. I started to slow because it was the only one indicating an exit. Except it couldn't be the right one, because that sign read sleeper, and Sleeper was the exact same exit I had pulled off of earlier to talk to the mostly toothless old man. My car rumbled beneath me, jingling the trinkets I had hanging from my rearview mirror. 
a keychain with a rose quartz crystal, a dead air freshener I should have already replaced, a poorly made friendship bracelet from my boyfriend that spelled out my name, Dinah, surrounded by various cheap plastic beads. They made an unpleasant clinking sound that irritated me so much, I jerked the wheel and took the exit, pulling into the same gas station's parking lot, seeing the same peeling white paint and antiquated payphone. As I walked beneath the hand-carved sign, I had a sense of deja vu. But is it really deja vu if you know you've been there before? The old man behind the counter smiled at me, revealing his lack of teeth. Back again. I thought I told you. It's not that far. I was irritated, but didn't want to argue. I followed your directions. I went straight down the road, towards the sunset, and I ended up back here. Hmm. You must have got turned around. He regarded me with the sort of look you'd give a child who's lost their parent in a shopping mall. It's really easy. It's not as far as you think. Just get back on the highway. Look for the signs. You'll get where you need to go. I gritted my teeth. This was the exact same thing he'd told me before. I said thank you, and this time when I left, I didn't feel obligated to buy anything. Driving down the highway, car rumbling beneath me. It was probably rumbling because I hit a deer earlier that night. I had hope since there wasn't a lot of damage to my car, maybe it wouldn't be a big deal. But that rumbling was making me nervous. All the stupid stuff on my rearview mirror clinking together. I didn't appreciate the colors of the sunset now. I just had to get to Chicago. It was still dusk. Why was it still dusk? I looked at the clock on my dashboard and it said 9.08, which meant it should be dark by now. I banged my fist on it, thinking it was just faulty wiring, but no use. It still read 9.08 and the sky was still full of color. After a few miles, I saw a dog on the side of the road a dog with a rich brown and black coat, a German shepherd. I love animals, so when I saw he was limping, I pulled over right away. It didn't matter that I was trying to get to Chicago before dark, because I was obviously running late. But a stray dog on the side of a mostly abandoned highway? No, I couldn't let that go. At the very least, I'd check his collar. Or if he didn't have one, I'd take him to a humane society. Maybe I have more empathy for animals than people? I don't know. I slowed my car to a stop, trying not to spook him. The dog stood at attention as soon as I opened my car door. His ears perked. Come here, buddy. I crooned, trying to coax him towards me. I also did that weird thing everyone does when they're trying to get an animal to come to them. A motion with my hand that looks like you're trying to scoop something out of the air. He growled, immediately, And not the kind of growl that a dog gives because he wants to play. The kind of growl that means, get any closer to me and I'll bite your face off. If it had been a West Highland Terrier, maybe I would have tried harder. Because I know that kind of dog couldn't truly hurt me. But a German Shepherd? No. They use those for police work. So no way I was ready to tackle with that. I'd seen plenty of videos online to know that German Shepherds are nothing to fuck with. I put my hands up in a gesture of surrender and slowly, carefully, backed into my car. I started it up again. The car rumbled. 
My stupid trinkets jingled. I glanced in my rearview mirror. The German shepherd was still there, snarling at me. The lady on the radio said again, Wishing yet again I had my Spotify playlist and my GPS, I got back onto the highway after carefully signaling left. Not like I needed to. The highway was strangely empty. Well, how can I forget you, girl? I drove, kind of tuning out the song from the 60s, trying to forget the dog I'd left in my rearview mirror. I drove towards the sunset. I looked for the signs. There were no signs helping me on my way to Chicago, but I saw something stranded on the side of the road. A Cubs hat. A baseball hat. It was askew, stuck in the tall grass near a soybean field. I kept driving. I saw the exit. Sleeper. It shouldn't have been there, because I already took that exit, but what was I supposed to do? I took it, because I knew that was the only place I could talk to anyone. I shut off that damn song and went into the gas station. The same gas station I'd already been in twice. Of course, the same old man was behind the counter, and I should have known that because it was the exact same fucking gas station I'd already pulled into so many times before. The sky was still the same goddamn sunset. I'm back, I said as I walked through the white doors. Of course you are. He smiled without many teeth. Then he gave me a look that was almost fatherly. You can't find your way? No. I was on the verge of tears. Pumpkin. At this time, it didn't bother me because it didn't feel condescending. It felt genuinely affectionate. That weren't no deer you hit. You know that, right? I didn't mean to. He actually came around the counter to hold me in his bony arms. I collapsed there, crying, hoping this whole thing was a nightmare. It's not as far as you think. He rubbed my back in soothing little circles. Just hop back on the highway. I'm embarrassed to admit that I cried into this old man's shirt, probably leaving mascara stains there. But when I was done, I straightened up and said, Okay. Okay. He still rubbed a comforting hand over my back. Okay. I agreed, and I left, still not buying a single thing from his shop. I got back into my car. I took the exit. As I merged, the trinkets hanging from my window kept clinking, so I grabbed them and tore them down, destroying my rearview mirror in the process. No matter. I took the handful of junk and threw it out my driver's side window. It felt like a huge weight had been lifted from my shoulders. But then, I saw the exit sign. The first one that I'd seen since I'd seen Sleeper over and over and over. This exit was for another town. Suddenly, my phone sprung to life. The GPS focused in on a location. Right off the highway was a police station. I knew what I was supposed to do. So I hit my blinker and took the exit, and I prepared myself to tell them about the hitchhiker with the dog that I had hit with my car earlier that day because I simply wasn't paying attention. The one I left lying in the road miles back, probably a few miles before Sleeper, P. 
because I was too scared to tell anyone. But I knew if I didn't tell anyone, if I didn't turn myself in, I would be stuck on this road forever, going to the same gas station forever, always being told it's not as far as you think. And as I barreled towards the exit, my car rumbling, the front of it beaten and battered and covered in blood, I saw that the dusk was finally fading. The sun had gone down, and it was finally getting dark outside. Finally. Finally. I let out the breath I'd been holding in, and carefully, slowly, exited the highway, ready to tell the truth. Because it's not as far as you think. Scientific advancements have helped humanity in so many ways. Consider the field of prosthetics. Within a generation, we've gone from rudimentary hooks and stumps to today's high-tech, fully functional devices. But in this tale, shared with us by author Dominic Breeze, we meet a man who's having trouble with his new prosthetic device. If only the company that made it could give him a helping hand. I join Peter Lewis, Mick Wingert, Wafia White, and Lindsay Russo in performing this tale. So try to remain calm. I'm sure you can protect yourself, even after you've been armed. Power, Intelligence, Beauty Engineered and manufactured in the USA using a NASA-approved Mylar composite, Wonderlim is the world's most advanced multi-grip bionic arm. With Wonderlim, you are free to do all the things you were born to do. Drive a car, ride a bike, type at a computer, pitch a baseball, even hold hands with a loved one. The only limit is your imagination. Wonderlim, reaching confidently towards a better tomorrow. Sorry, we're working hard to take your call. Please stay on the line and one of our customer care representatives will be with you as soon as possible. We thank you for your patience. Our range of state-of-the-art arm and leg prostheses feature more than 500 highly sensitive brain function modeling transmitters that allow users the freedom of effortless control. Wonderlim is lightweight and fully customizable. Choose from our wide selection of interchangeable sleeves in a stunning range of colors and designs. Wonderlim is completely waterproof. You can even wear it in the shower. Hello, you're through to the Wonderlim customer care team. My name is Roxy. How may I help you today? Roxy, listen very carefully. I, I need your help. Yes, sir. How may I assist you today? I need to speak with Jeremy Zhang. I'm sure I can assist you, sir. What exactly is the nature of your call? Roxy, this is an emergency. I need to speak to Jeremy. Do you have somebody there called Jeremy Zhang? Sir, Mr. Sheng is the CEO of Wonderlin. He doesn't typically take customer calls. 
I'm sure I can help you with any questions you might have. <laughs> this really is very urgent. I'm sorry, sir. I know his husband. Tell him that I know Frederick. I know his daughter, Lucy. I am a family friend. Please tell him that. One moment, sir. Turn your disability into durability with Wonderlim. The patented Wonderlim design is sleek, powerful, and elegant. Dual engineered for practicality and strength. Our Wonderlim arms and legs can be worn with all styles of clothing, from sportswear to dinner gowns and tuxedos. Wonderlim offers a choice of 25 different colors and more than 100 customizable designs. Wonderlim truly works for all occasions. But more than good looking, Wonderlim is a miracle of modern technology. Wonderlim has been designed with the user in mind and replicates all the natural movement of a living biological arm or leg. Visit one of our convenient nationwide locations today for a free consultation. It's never been easier to upgrade your life with one. Hello, this is Jeremy Zhang. Jeremy, thank God. Who's speaking, please? My name isn't important. David, call me David, if you like. Roxanne mentioned you know my husband? That's not entirely true. I'm sorry, I had to find a way to speak with you. What can I do for you, David? I'm having some serious issues here. David, if you have a product query, it really is best if you speak with our dedicated customer care team. No, I need to speak to you. You, personally. I mean, I'm a customer of yours. A triple amputee. I lost both my arms and a leg in Iraq. A few days ago, I decided to invest in some of your products. Well, David, thank you for calling. Please allow me to extend my thanks for choosing Wonderlim. I hope that doesn't sound trite. I don't mean it to. It's men like you that inspired me to start this company. Jeremy, please shut up and listen to me. Okay, David. How can I help? I'm in trouble. Yes, I gather that. Why'd you call me, David? That's it. That's exactly it. I didn't call you. They did. David, I'm very busy at the moment. I'm not a big fan of prank calls. This isn't a prank. Something has gone wrong. I, I can't take them off. They won't let me take them off. They're malfunctioning? That would be an understatement. What's your customer number there, David? Customer number? Jeremy, are you listening to me? I'm trying to help, David. I just need some more information first. Your customer number is on the opening page of your welcome pack. Can you check it for me, please? I can't check it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I can't do anything. Not unless they want me to. Look, David, I can have an engineer come out to you. There's a call-out fee and an additional charge for a same-day visit. If this is a prank call, might I suggest you cut your losses now and hang up the phone? This isn't a prank. Please, just listen to me. It started a few hours after they were fitted. They picked up a pen and just started writing. Autonomously, I mean. Completely out of my control. I was amazed at first. I, th I thought it was some harmless glitch. It was almost funny until I tried to take them off. What models are you running over there, David? Models? I, I don't know. They're brand new. David, I'm going to put you on hold for a moment and see if I can speak to an engineer. No, don't put me on hold. I'm afraid I don't have the technical expertise to deal with something like this. Tyrell Coiner, do you recognize that name? Should I? Try and think, please. It's quite a distinctive name, isn't it? Okay, David. 
I think I understand. Well played. Very well played. You've got me on the phone. You've got what you wanted. So go on and say what you want to say. And try and make it quick. I really am quite busy. Jeremy, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say that you're a journalist. Am I right? Journalist? No, I'm just a customer. I, I already told you that. Okay, have it your way, David. Or whoever you are. There really is no need for these elaborate games. I've spoken to so many of your people already. Willingly, I might add. I'll happily answer your questions. I've got nothing to hide. Jeremy, I am not a journalist. I'm not playing games. Please listen to what I'm telling you. They trashed my home, the furniture, the walls. They attacked me. Do you understand? Smashed my face, my nose. I I need help. They won't let me go to a hospital. They won't even let me pad my nose to stop the bleeding. Tyrell Coiner, that's the name it keeps writing. And it's not even my handwriting. I think he's the one doing this. I think he's the one that dialed this number. David, I'm not sure what you're trying to achieve with this performance. Everything we've done, all the research and development, all our work, including our work with men like Tyrell Coiner, it's all 100% legal and transparent. I'm not sure how I can make it any clearer. Just read the small print on our website. I have read it. He made me read it. The small print, the hundreds of web articles. He was a prisoner, wasn't he? On death row? That's how you developed the technology. If you have read it, you'll know that a very small percentage of our brain function modeling volunteers were inmates from the Polonsky unit in Texas. Yes. Volunteers, David. That's true. We're not trying to hide anything, as I've already said. You can quote me if you like. What did you promise them? Excuse me? You told them they'd get off, promised them a reduced sentence, something like that. I've been trying to make sense of the writing, picking out what I can from the rambling. That's it, isn't it? You told them they'd get their lives back. We made no such promises. Tyrell Coiner did your tests, and he still got the lethal injection. He was one of your volunteers. Ugh. Okay, David. If you've got no sensible questions for me, I think we're done here. You have a good day, sir. Don't hang up, please. You have to help me. I'm not a journalist. I'm not playing games. He's holding a knife. He's only using it to scratch words into the walls at the moment, but I'm worried what he might do next. These calls are all recorded. Do you understand that? I have grounds to report you to the police. Yes, call the police, please. Send help. Okay, David. I think I will call the police. I'm sure you'll be more than happy to divulge your home address to me on this recorded phone line. One Joker's Boulevard, is it? Number two Gotcha Street? Am I anywhere close? Listen very carefully. I'm not at my home. I'm at your home. He put me in the car and drove me here 40 hours to Arlington. He wouldn't even let me stop to rest or eat. I'm so tired. This isn't funny. And now I am calling the police. Goodbye, Ms. Yellow wallpaper. The nursery has yellow wallpaper with little animal designs. The mobile hanging over the crib has photos of Lucy and Frederick and you. Come home, Jeremy. Come home. That's what he keeps writing, hacking it into the walls over and over. God, it hurts. I need to drink, to eat, to sleep. 
please, whatever you do, Jeremy, don't come home. I think he wants to kill you next. David, what do you mean? He hasn't done anything to Lucy yet, but... Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. David, please listen to me. Whatever issue you have with me, that's fine. We can talk about it. I'm happy to listen. But please leave my family out of this. I can't put down the knife. He won't let me. I can't even hang up the phone. I I think he wants you to listen. To listen to what he's going to do. I'm sorry, Jeremy. I'm so sorry. David. David. Hello, are you there? David, if you're still there, please listen to me. I can be home in 25 minutes. Please don't hurt my daughter. I'm begging you. I'm going to patch this through to my car. Please keep talking to me, David. We, we, we can talk about this. David? I, I'm coming home. I'm coming home right now. Power. Intelligence. Beauty. Engineered and manufactured in the USA using a NASA-approved Mylar composite, Wonderlim is the world's most advanced multi-grip bionic arm. With Wonderlim, you are free to do all the things you were born to do. Drive a car, ride a bike, type at a computer, pitch a baseball, even hold hands with a loved one. The only limit is your imagination. Wonderlim, reaching confidently towards a better tomorrow. Let's be honest, playing pranks on people is rarely fun. Unless the person being punked can take a joke and the prank doesn't go too far, someone is likely going to end up pissed off. And in this tale, shared with us by author Neil Krolicki, we meet some teenagers who think they're pulling off quite the joke without realizing they might be driving their victims crazy. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, Ellie Hirschman, Jesse Cornett, Lindsay Russo, and Kyle Akers. So stick to light-hearted, whimsical japes if you want to play a prank. Nobody wants to deal with your mess, even if it's just a gag. It's never not funny when the grenades tag a windshield with that sick splat. Rory sprints two long steps and skyhooks the next one over his head with all he's got. His upper half folds over the guardrail as the bomb smacks down on a minivan log jammed in traffic below. Cracking up, we hustle the backpack heaped with jiggling ammo to a new spot along the overpass. Behind the wheel is every driver who thought they'd just cruise along Hampton tonight. Roll all brain dead through the light and mineral. But right there, the signs stop them. A black screen, 
big as any jumbo sports bar TV times 10 and propped high on a steel post that runs down to a two-wheeled trailer. Across the sign's face, glowing squares make chunky letters tall as concert posters. The sign blinks. Zombie attacks through city. Aim for head. It blinks again. Now it reads, Dead are rising. Arm yourself. <laughs> A whole gridlock of cars are dead stopped in our crosshairs down there. A roadblock of brake lights blasting everything in your face red. Same as what spurts from the neck stump of a hacked-off head in a horror flick. You know, red like that. Drivers lean their heads out from the car windows. They squint to read harder. We duck under our leather jackets when the light from the news helicopter sweeps by again. If they were even looking, they'd only see a couple of black humps dotted with safety pins and anarchy buttons. Tipping off the news people from a burner email saved both of us the pain of videoing this ourselves. There's no sport in live streaming. Kids like us are all the time puking up so much channel content that it's about as special as a script for Adderall. But making it to the old school news news? Getting boomers yelling at their TVs about you know how the world's gone all apocalyptic? Those are chef's kiss bragging rights. Rubberneckers hop up on their packed-together cars to get a better shot. To make videos of themselves with a huge, hilarious sign. First, we hear them laughing. Right before they start coughing. Hands clamp over their mouths and noses. Some scrunch over, holding their stomachs, trying not to hurl. Out in this air, everyone's getting nose-bashed with the creamy center surprise in our grenades. Blitzed with the stench... The sharp funk of something dead. Christ! What reeks? We lob our ammo like how you see soldiers throw grenades in war movies. Windmilling our arms and letting go at just the right second. And... Direct hits almost every time. I reach into the backpack where the stockpile of slugs roll over each other and reload. My shot arcs onto some chode's hybrid with a snap of a fatty belly flopping in a pool. People are pulling their shirt collars up over their noses, coughing, <laughs> gagging. The sign blinks. Don't call 911. Cops can't help. It blinks again and reads, Jesus can't help you either. The big sign's regular job is to tell drivers about, you know, construction ahead. Buckle up. Right lane closed. Everything that isn't screen is painted hyper orange and dotted with stickers that say screwing with it is a crime. The lock between us lowlifes and the keypad that blasts out anything you want to a highway in giant letters was weaker than the school lockers I picked for fun. Anyone can learn enough locksmithing to be dangerous with the internet and this pick set that costs less than half a tank of gas. A twist of the tension wrench tickle of the lock tumblers with the diamond rake and winner winner later when posers ask how we pulled this off i'll tell them it starts at the grocery store you zip down the aisles girls head to when they're perioding packed in beside the cotton rockets and laxatives is a rack of sperm stoppers 
yoink, those you just pocket. Go ultra thin, anything beefier bounces right off a target without busting. We've never gotten nailed, but the security guy always trails us because of our long hair. Our death metal t-shirts plastered with corpses and bleeding letter band names. Book through the soup aisle next and shuffle as many packs of ramen into your shopping basket as possible. You won't get as many as you need doing the trick, you know, where you stuff them down your waistband and your cinched off pant legs. You'll crackle all the way out like you're wearing a bust me sign. So the ramen you pay for. Last thing, some cheap trash bags. Down the aisle of grilling gear when we passed the charcoal and came up on the jugs of lighter fluid, my combat boots squeaked to a stop. I thought it was genius, but Rory smacked my chest when I reached out for one of the jugs. Arichella Gallego, dude. Never forget. For us, this is like saying know when to say when. Human puppet Arichella, whose ransom video has been around like HPV. It's her, blindfolded, mouth duct taped, and wrists tied tight in front of her. A rope coiled in a noose around her neck. The face of the creep that snatched her is behind a skull bandana and mirrored aviators. He swipes at the camera with a wide knife like chefs use for whacking whole chickens apart. The guy's going to chop off her her feet or her, her hands. The threats, he's, he's definitely making them up on the fly. He talks from deep in his throat, you know, a wimp doing an impression of an impression of a movie maniac. It's some unfinished basement where this thing's all going down, all concrete and echoey. How the shot's set up, Arachella's shaking knees are as high as the creep's chest. It's far back enough you can see the chair he's got her standing on. The creep's thrashing that hardcore knife so hard right by her that all it's going to take is one walkie step and he'll bury that blade all the way to the bone in her leg easy. He's saying he wants 3000 No, no, $5,000 when you hear the faraway cracking sound. A falling tree, timber kind of cracking. When the front legs of the chair both cave, Aricelli's whole body dumps over, sweeps out into nothing as the rope tightens, and she goes crash test dummy limp. Except her feet. Her feet could be clamped to a car battery, they're jittering so much. The creep's still point blank ranting into the camera, you know, really feeling himself. It's two more threat riffs before the guy finally turns to Aricella hanging there. The video rolls on as he sprints over and hugs her knees, trying to pull her up. He claws handfuls of her jeans, yanking up on her deadweight legs. He ekes out onto his tiptoes with her butt wedged on his shoulders, same as you'd hoist someone for a chicken fight in a pool. The maniac voice is gone when he starts screaming for help screaming for his mom. You don't know the creep is really Aricella's boyfriend until the whole story's spelled out on the news news. That the whole fake kidnapping thing was a setup to pwn everybody. A giant troll. Rumors say it was the boyfriend's brother who snuck the video online. Aricella's left foot drags behind her a little when she walks now. When we spark a blunt, she'll ask me something, and by the time the blunt's cashed, 
She's asked me the same something a bunch more times. The drop, the limp squeeze at the end of the rope. It wasn't enough to break her neck. You need to know how far to take these things. Where the line gets drawn. For one, don't really tie the rope to a basement beam. The sign blinks. Stay sane. It blinks again and reads, Protect your brain. Someone's hollering below. It's zombies, man. Smell it? That sign's real. Drive! Go! Go where, man? When the posers ask, I'll tell them to hammer the ramen packages with a boot heel in some parking lot. Bust them down into little corkscrew pieces. You'll need a Rory next. Somebody who can choke all the hard ramen bits down, barely chewed, until every pouch gets emptied down his dead throat. I piled the unwrapped rubbers between us in my two-door beater, sucked in one last clean breath and held it with my face turned. Wide as I could, I held open the trash bag as Rory plunged the back of his throat with our one-hitter. And when he heaved an army of puffed ramen maggots, surfed the puke tsunami into the bag. Pulses of stomach-boiled noodle bits over and over until Rory's stomach hit empty and he was just spitting. Until the trash bag was heavy with hot spew. His watering eyes made his cheeks wet and Rory howled laughing. The smell. Ugh. That magical Rory gut brew is a claw that punches you right down your throat. Rory's trademark stomach gravy. The smell coils around your lunch and jerks. All the smell wants is to empty out your insides and it is glorious. Rory stretched open the first jizz balloon and I gashed open a corner of the trash bag with my gonzo hook pick. It's like the bag is full of frosting you see cake decorators use, the insides forced down to a skinny tip. When one cum catcher would overflow, Rory pulled open another under the funneled stream of puke. Most of it made it into the dick sheaths, but Rory's hands took a bath in it too. I didn't say you wouldn't get your hands dirty. The sign blinks. Anarchy! It blinks again and reads, Kill at will! My next latex cannonball bobbles in the air real high. The snaky tube, the springy dong shape of it, smacks down on some king douche bimmer. What people are calling each other? Screaming at each other? Ah, oh, it's like a whole Wikipedia page of slurs. Your average party balloon is too limp dick. You can't pry the blowhole enough to give it a decent payload, that's why the rubbers. In sex ed, we watched Mr. Hollings yank and stretch a wang mitten over some chode-like vegetable. Mr. H, sporting one of his wannabe cowboy shirts, he dug the rubber over some squash thing longer and fatter than anything anybody'd want to shove in them. The thing never busted. A banana wrapper will bust with enough liquid inside, though, if they're thrown from high enough. I huck a wobbly frag that snaps upside the ear of some buzz-hair-cut dork, sloshing his dome in goo. 
buzz cut, he squeegees his face with his palm and points at this Mr. Slick Camaro driver a few cars over. You're dead! Both guys are out of their cars, you know, chests puffed up. Ladies that think they're everyone's mom, and they're out too, saying, Boys, breeze, relax! The wash of red brake lights. It could be a river of glowing blood spreading wider as more cars get snagged in our perfect ambush. Rory's next torpedo launches from his hand, kind of weird, but still thwacks some soccer mom's neck. Oh my god, it's... Ew, ew, it's maggots! More dorks are up on their hoods, squawking loud how maybe the sign's not a joke. It's so funny I have to cross the knees of my jeans and pull my legs tight not to piss myself. Some nerd screaming that this is totally what zombies would smell like. Mr. Hollings, on the first school day back after Ericella got all infamous, after every teacher thought they had to give lectures about the dangers of practical jokes, he said, Pranks are about exploiting power. Mr. H pushed the shaggy curls back on his head as he straddled his turned-around chair, you know, getting real, real. The pranker, he explained, is nearly always above the victim in the social food chain. He didn't say always, always, because he knows about Seth Camacho. The prancy dance squad Seth was part of they tiptoed and turned on the school stage, with projectors shooting footage of forest fires and crumbling glaciers across them. These dancers hopped and whipped their heads. They wiggled like salmon to tom-tom drums and whale songs. Rory wanted Seth from the first time he saw the guy turn a dive roll into a soaring eagle pose. In the dance crew's off-season, I didn't see Rory much at all. They barely left Seth's house. Those couple of times when all three of us got ripped, Seth bragged how his troop crisscrossed the whole U.S. of A, competing against other... What do you call them? Oh, yeah. Performance ensembles. He bitched about the Grand Lord Emperor Jerkoff that herded the dancers from airports to hotels to shows. The adult chaperone so up everyone's ass they nicknamed him R.T. Rectal Thermometer. Up their asses like strict, not molesty. This fun killer policed when the dancers ate, slept, and shit. And he flexed his smidge of authority hard. When he caught Seth sparking a blunt by a motel dumpster, R.T. made him give over his whole stash. This is all getting burned, the hard ass said. He didn't mean burn like the party way. RT made the whole group's curfew eight after that, and they hated Seth more than the girl who couldn't keep a beat. Seth slid the pistol into RT's duffel bag right before the team wheeled their luggage into an airport in Wisconsin. This happened after our smoke sessions when Seth's group was flying together every other weekend again. A security guy watching the monitor on the x-ray belt points at RT in some secret code way and all the blue shirts around swarmed him. Every dancer posted a video of this, them always laughing on the other side of the camera. How many airport cops and TSA dorks show up 
you can't even count on videos, but it looks like all of them. The whole airport's worth. RT's bulldozed to the ground, one cheek mushed into the tile floor with cops on both arms and legs pinning him. All these shoeless people trying to get through security are backed into a big circle. Everyone with all their pocket stuff stranded in trays that they're piling up on an x-ray belt. Another cop carefully lowers his fingers into RT's bag. From the floor, RT watches the dancers rain high fives on Seth. They hang on his shoulder, snort laughing. Seth cocks an eyebrow at the rectal thermometer laid out there, making sure he knows that it's Seth that did him dirty like this. Pinching the black gun out with two careful fingers, you hear the officer get all pissed. Son of a bitch, he says. It's a toy, Jesus Christ. <laughs> to every tippy-toe dancer crowded around him at that moment, Seth was the GOAT. He was LeBron, Bryant, and Jordan all in one if pranks were pro sport. All it cost Seth was 10 bucks and a trip to the toys at Walmart. Even though RT's not a real gun smuggler, the airport cops are steaming pissed. They still haul him into an office somewhere where he's fingerprinted and his driver's license info dumped into a database, slapping him on some list of rejects to torture when they fly next. All Seth knew by the time their plane took off was that RT wasn't on it with them. Seth's parents take away his red hatchback and ground him for pretty much ever. Spit flying from their mouths, they screamed that he'd never leave his room again. Texting with Rory later, Seth still said, worth it. It's on the news news that Seth's folks find out with everybody else that RT had arrest warrants four states away. In nicer voices than before, they tell Seth that RT got taken into custody after the airport prank put him on the cops' radar. How the fingerprinting told cops that RT was a totally different guy. Some suspect guy the cops in that other state really wanted to talk to about his grandma with memory problems. About the house that burned to a pile of nothing with her inside. Why RT is even on the news is because he'd headbutted the cop who tried to duck him into a police cruiser. RT bolted, and he was right that second at large. Before he stopped seeing Rory altogether, Seth told him how his hatchback was Molotov cocktailed right in his driveway that week. How his black lab Cheesy was at the vet, most of his body hairless and charred. Cheesy got doused with paint thinner right in Seth's backyard. And, man. Rory said a hammer clanked to the floor from under Seth's mattress the last time they ever hooked up. Seth had an aluminum baseball bat propped by his window and a pistol-gripped can of pepper spray hanging on his bedroom door handle. The cops, who don't really know RT, they tell Seth that the guy wouldn't be stupid enough to come back here and risk getting busted just for some payback. Seth's folks, die-hard blue staters, they buy a handgun, a real one. Weatherproof cameras are bolted on every side of Seth's house now. His doorbell's the camera kind. Still, 
You're not going to see Seth outside. He never leaves his room. Maybe pranks are about power, but who's got it can change faster than a headshot drops a zombie. The sign blinks. Don't hesitate. It blinks again and reads, Exterminate. Popping up from our overpass turret, arms back and loaded with two more rounds to catapult, we spot Buzzcut again. The guy I pelted, his face crusty with Rory's stomach brew. And we spot the lug wrench he's winding over his head. He's got one of them. Somebody shoves toward Mr. Slick with a lacrosse stick. Get it in the head, man. A rush of strangers edges in on Mr. Slick, who helicopters his arms in defense. The amped up people, the growing army of truckers and good suburbanite Christians, they back Mr. Slick against a van. They wave snow scrapers and baseball bats. Black rifle barrels bounce like periscopes in the sea of panicked morons, but Buzzcut's raging at his target too hard to set the crowd straight. Hey! Hey, another one! Yo, one over here! Police lights strobe from way off, trapped along the outsides of the dog-piled cars. Now, whole swarms of helicopters rumble overhead. Their spotlights carve the street. The mob snakes apart, cornering other non-zombies with their tire chains and scissor jack levers. There's the sound you hear in movies when the action hero chambers a shotgun round. It's a dumb prank. You guys. The growing pile of bodies on Mr. Slick have his hands pinned back, shoving him down when Buzzcut hammers the guy's hair with a lug wrench. Across the side of the van, the red splatter is horror movie perfect. A Picasso streak of red. All around, wherever clumps of rioters are rushing, someone's hands try to grab hold of the air and then dip under the plowing herd. A breath later, it's the same burst of red. Every few car lengths, the reddest red blasts across windows and car doors like casino fountains. The splashback clouds of spatter trickle in the headlights. Rory and me... Now we're Aricella, with our feet suddenly slipping out into nothing. We're Seth, triggering a psycho. All the red, it's too much. The vivid wash of brake lights on everything. The electric red insides of people, plastered on the lowriders and four-bangers and, and soccer bomb vans. <laughs> Some cop's voice, we, we barely hear it on his PA. Bits of what he's saying. Return. Vehicles. Calm. Some death wish dingus is lying flat on the roof of an RV. Flat like he's, he's hoping he'll melt and disappear when he should be running. This dingus sporting a wannabe cowboy shirt. His... His head shaggy with curls. Dude, is that? Rory points at the RV guy. If you're not part of the armed crazies snaking through the traffic, you're the other thing. The ones 
waiting to get mashed into a red mist. Mr. Hollings, frozen on top of that RV, he's chum in the water, dead meat because of us. Rory sees it on my face because he says there's nothing we can do, but his voice cracks. Same as me, he sees the packs circling closer to that RV. Mr. H is a cheerleader in a slasher flick, counting the time he has left in minutes. I smack Rory's shoulder and start running. We charge along the street to where the overpass meets the hill and hop the guardrail. But the ground jumps up under us, steeper than we thought, and we pitch over head first. Everything's streaking by too fast to think how to roll. We can only flop head, elbow, ass over and over. Jagged glass bits flicker right before we skid through them. Blurs of cigarette butts, fast food wrappers, plunging down until we bang into the chain link fence at the bottom. I watch Rory push to his knees, peeling a scratcher from slashed mark face until a flush of warm from over my eyebrows drowns everything in dark. Dude, 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 dude. A soft something's pushed against my face, and when I can make him out again, Rory is shirtless. Hold it. Hold it real tight. I push myself up along the fence, and Rory's talking emergency rooms. How we should definitely find one fast. I mop my eyes, and telling Rory to haul ass, I crouch run into the traffic jam. We push towards Mr. Hollings with our backs along the cars, hunched down. Rory's shirt gets heavier every time I press it to my face. On the overpass, this was all a movie. Another splatterfest happening somewhere else. Down here, ribbons of red stream along the street from under the tires. The crack of gunfire echoes over screaming over calls for help clipped mid-sentence, over the splatter-smack sound of metal on wet meat. We push up the ladder at the back of the RV with sticky hands, whisper-shouting for Mr. H. He's got a shaky foot cocked back to drive through someone's head when I peek over. Parker? What are... Come on. His foot drops. He pulls up, whispering, stay quiet, and already it's all coming out. Our blubbering confession about everything. Mr. H is a squirrel on Red Bull, eyes darting, watching for predators. He pushes our heads down, shushing us. We say how funny the prank was supposed to be, how unhurt everybody was supposed to be, how it's not our fault. Not, not totally. We're six-year-olds telling Dad about how we, we busted in a window and we're sorry. Now, now he's not looking around anymore. His eyes are fixed on me and he's not blinking. His mouth stuck half open. I say we've, we've got a path out. If he follows us back, we can save at least him. 
prankings about domination, about creating victims for a laugh. If you believe Mr. Hollings. In class, he said that at its core, pranks are about cruelty. Mr. Hollings, the dingus, he stands up tall. Hey! Shut up, man. Quiet. Three men stop clubbing something at their feet and turn all over their baseball bats and crescent wrenches. It's red, red spray on their clothes. Their knuckles are painted with it. Red. Mr. Hollings, President Dingus, he points at Rory and me. Hey! Two more over here! The two of us slicked in blood. To the crazies, we look bloodthirsty. Undead. We look like two contagious animals that need killing. The sign blinks. Run. It, it blinks again and reads, Save yourself. In our final tale, we meet Sarah, a young girl who is spending her summer with her friends. Their imagination helps them turn a mundane summer into a land of fantastical places. But in this tale, shared with us by author Tor Anders Olven, a rather strange individual comes around, strange because Sarah is the only one who can see him. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Kristen DiMercurio, and Mick Wingert. So have fun with your vivid imagination, but learn a lesson from this tale called Me, Mizell, and Inspector Hole in the Face. Having an imaginary friend is quite common, I've been told. It's usually a symptom of developing social intelligence, or in some cases having to deal with loneliness and isolation or trauma, all valid and understandable reasons. And sure, there weren't that many kids where I grew up. But even so, I still had my best friend, Mizell, right around the corner. So I never really felt alone in any significant capacity so why then, might you ask, would I need an imaginary friend? There's no easy answer, but it all began and ended with Mizelle. Mizelle and I were cut from the same cloth. Two peas in a pot. All the wonderful banalities wrapped together to form a magical friendship. Inseparable, adventurous, wild, and unhinged. During summer break, he'd be at my doorstep the moment I woke up and we spend the long, warm hours in the old haunted quarry 
or in the faraway forest, or throwing pine cones down the abyssal ravine until the day turned to dusk, and we find ourselves laughing and chasing each other home, desperately trying to outrun the creeping darkness, haunted in our vivid imagination by monsters, ghouls, and ghosts at our heels. These were beautiful times, and I'm sure you remember them yourself. There were no worries, no responsibilities, no dark thoughts. Just endless days of mystery and joy, seamlessly overlapping each other until school suddenly started and the world became gray and monotonous once more. But the summer I met Inspector Hole in the Face was different. It was darker, colder, shorter, like nature itself tried to warn us about the black days ahead. Ms. Ellen and I didn't care, though. Come wind or rain, you'd find us roaming the countryside, hand in hand as we explored every nook and cranny of our quaint little corner of the world. I still remember the day I met the inspector vividly. We were fishing for snakes in the putrid pond. We'd always come up with silly names for newly discovered places. A blackish-green algae-infested cesspool, and we were debating whether or not snakes actually lived in the murky depths of it. Sure they do. Mazel's fishing rod flailed wildly about. They love places like this. Slimy and dark with plenty of insects and frogs and stuff to eat. I bet there's a huge one at the bottom, like an enormous sea serpent just sleeping down there. <laughs> Shut up. Look at the size of this thing. It can barely fit the two of us. He smiled slyly. I'm telling you, Sarah, that's how sea serpents are made. They sleep at the bottom of ponds like this and come up for a snack at night, then tunnel through the earth and into lakes where they get big. Like that movie, Tremors. You're so full of it. I punched him in the shoulder. Full of the truth. <laughs> A rustle in some leaves on the other side of the pond drew my attention, followed by the unmistakable sound of twigs snapping. I briefly spotted a shadow disappearing between the trees, further into the vastness of the faraway forest. Did you see that? See what? Mazel peered at me quizzically. Did you spot a snake? No. I squinted into the shadowy myriads of trees. There was something in the forest. Oh, it's probably a chupacabra. They usually eat young sea serpents, you know. They do not. I feign my best you're so full of it expression. You're making it up. Doesn't mean it's not true. We packed up our stuff and hustled down the trail once we noticed the sun was in descent. We were always late, and we never learned, nor cared. Our parents didn't mind us staying out late, as long as we got home before dark. 
and we usually beat the darkness by about five minutes, give or take. I'm telling you, they like to taste kids. That's why there are so many of them around our school. He was sharing his hypothesis that all old people are secretly cannibals again, and I was getting tired of rolling my eyes at him. You don't think it's because there's a retirement home right next to our school? Yes, of course, but why do you think they built it there of all places? Heed my advice, Sarah. Never trust old people. Mazelle suddenly stopped and grabbed onto my arm, eyes wide with fear. For a moment, I thought he was kidding. But then I saw the figure approaching us from further down the trail. Well, if it isn't Sarah Freakerson. Freddy Purcell loomed ahead of us, a stupid grin resting on his pimpled face. You're a long way from home. Freddy was a couple of years older than me, and a relentless bully. Over the last couple of years, he'd started targeting me in particular, and I was getting really fed up with it. Mizell said it was because he had a crush on me. That's how boys show it, he told me, by being mean. I always found that theory utterly ridiculous. Real inventive, Freddy. I rolled my eyes. Doesn't even make sense. My last name is Paulson. Mizell was slowly inching behind me. He was tiny for his age only reaching to my shoulders. And that fact, in combination with his fiery red hair and numerous freckles, made him a prime target for bullies, as he'd stated. How's your brother doing, Freakerson? Still dead? I felt a sudden urge to gouge out his eyes and spit in his empty sockets, tear out his tongue and feed it to him. And I suppose Mizell must have sensed that I was about to lose it. He yelled from behind the comfort of my back. Screw you, Purcell. Everyone knows your father beats you up because you wet your bed. He really shouldn't have said that. It wasn't a lie. Everyone did know that. But everyone also knew that you shouldn't piss off Freddy Purcell. At least not when you're facing him alone in the middle of the woods. What did you say? Freddy paced up the trail menacingly. Mizell knew he'd screwed up, and in an attempt to appear chivalrous, he scurried in front of me, shielding me from potential harm. Not that it did any good. Freddy threw him aside like he wasn't even there, and a moment later I was on the ground, the air knocked out of me by Freddy's gut punch. That'll teach you. Freddy spat on the ground. A rustle in the leaves pulled my eyes away from him. If I weren't more or less incapacitated, lungs still struggling to catch up, I would have screamed as I stared into the hollow crevice of Inspector Hole in the Face's face. He was just there for a split second, but that image is still etched into my retina. A gaunt figure peering at us behind a tree. The gaping chasm in the middle of his face, like a perpetual abyss staring back at me. 
stay away from my part of the forest, Freakerson. Or I'll really mess you up next time. He kicked some dirt in my face and stomped down the trail laughing. When I looked back at the bush, Inspector Hole in the Face was gone. I lay there coughing for minutes, Mazelle desperately trying to lift me back onto my feet. Did you see him? Did you see him in the forest? See what? Mazelle gave me a perplexed stare. The chupacabra? Mazelle helped me get home to the best of his ability, but we couldn't beat the darkness this time around. On the way down, I told him what I'd seen in that bush, and I could immediately tell that he didn't believe me. He didn't outright say it, but it was really apparent if he knew his face. It's true. A man with a hole in his face. I believe you, Sarah. It's it's just it was so dark. How can you be sure? I'm sure. I know what I saw. He nodded hesitantly and embraced me in a long hug. It was our usual bedtime routine, but there was never anything romantic about it, even though I did keep a photo of him on my nightstand. We were friends. Best friends. As close as you can get. An unbreakable bond, destined to remain intact until the end of our days. Or so I thought, anyway. I didn't sleep very well that night. The vivid image of Inspector Hole in the face always haunting the periphery of my dreams. I got up around two in the morning and drew his face to the best of my ability. Did I really see him? I kept asking myself, staring at the drawing. Or was it just a figment of my imagination? Mizell was on my doorstep when I woke up as usual but I guess he must have noticed that I was a bit tired and grumpy because he was uncharacteristically careful in his approach. Let's go to the quarry today. Purcell doesn't know about the stone hut. Yeah, sure. I trudged along absentmindedly. Hey, Sarah? Mizell gave me a concerned look. About the whole thing with your brother? We didn't talk about my brother. No one talked about my brother. He was five years older than me and had died two years earlier in a car accident. What was so weird was that everyone, everyone, seemed to pretend like it had never happened. I didn't understand that. Why would they want to forget him? It's fine. I feigned a smile. Forget it. Freddy's a total moron anyway. 
I punched him in the shoulder hard enough for him to wince, and we ran laughing all the way up to the old haunted quarry. Whatever worries on our minds now all but faded memories. The quarry had been abandoned for as long as I can remember. Thus nature had claimed most of it back, but the stone hut remained. A formation of massive boulders placed haphazardly to form a small cave-like hole underneath. Mazelle found it last summer, and we'd come up here every once in a while to drop off supplies and decorate our makeshift base of operations. We had a couple of lawn chairs, a ramshackle wooden table, some cans of soda, a stack of old comics, assorted snacks, and a radio that never worked because Mazelle always forgot to bring batteries for it. Did you remember to bring batteries this time? Mazel chuckled, slapping his head theatrically. <laughs> Shucks, I always forget. We messed around in the stone hut for hours, drawing maps on the stone walls with sticks, planning our next expedition, pigging out on snacks, before slumping down in our chairs for a brief rest enjoying the silence of the place. It didn't take long before I heard the sound of him. Vague at first, like it was miles away, then louder and louder until I was convinced it was right outside the hut. Do you hear that? What is that? I had a hard time trying to identify the sound, but it was eerily familiar. Varying between a long metallic screech, discordant and unpleasant, like a door on rusty hinges slowly opening. Hear what? The chupacabra? Seriously? I gave him a stern look. You don't hear that? It wasn't deafening, but it was loud enough to echo throughout our hut. How could he not hear it? I shushed him and quietly slipped out, sneaking stealthily between overgrown boulders of all shapes and sizes, until I suddenly found myself face to face with the macabre shape of Inspector Hole in the Face. He was standing at the end of a long corridor of boulders, his harrowing figure at least twice my size. He was dressed in nothing but brown and green rags, dirty and faded. And for the longest while, he just stood there motionless, the impossible depth of the hole in his face like a swirling maelstrom. I couldn't move, eyes lost in the abyss of it, heart pounding ever more frantically. Mazelle soon joined me, tugging gently at my sleeve. What's going on? What are you doing? Don't you see him? I pointed at the figure. Stop fooling around, Sarah. There's nothing there. The bizarre statement brought me out of my trance, and with trembling hands I grabbed Mazel's sweater, pulling him close. His eyes widened in shock. I never laid hands on him. Not like that. This wasn't me. This wasn't Sarah. What do you mean he's right there? 
Inspector Hole in the Face still hadn't moved an inch, his terrifying frame omnipresent in the labyrinthine network of boulders. I felt like running. I felt like screaming. But even more so, I felt like getting some answers. Please, please, please stop, Sarah. You're scaring me. I released my grip on his sweater, and he backed away from me nervously. I wiped sweat and tears from my eyes and turned my gaze to the inspector once more. With slow, meticulous steps, I inched toward him, biting my lips so hard that I started bleeding. He still wasn't moving, and I'm not sure if that made him less scary or more so. He's right there. Right there. But then, moments before I reached the inspector, Mizell came running from behind, throwing himself in front of me, flailing his arms around wildly. Where is he? Where is the bastard? I froze again, my mind racing as I tried to make sense of the absurdity of the situation. I opened my mouth to speak, but I couldn't think of anything to say. Mazel kept swinging his arms around, most of the hits not only hitting the inspector, but going right through him. In fact, Mazel was standing inside the inspector as he threw the punches. With a trembling hand, I reached out to touch him and... did. His skin was rough, leathery and cold to the touch, but undoubtedly real. I shuddered and quickly withdrew. You're... you're standing inside him! Mizell looked at me, and I could see a smile slowly manifesting on his ridiculous face. Before long, he erupted in hysterical laughter, tumbling over as he seemingly lost control of his body. What are you laughing about? He is real! I can touch him. I can feel him. <laughs> it's it's an imaginary friend. <laughs> you have an imaginary friend, Sarah. <laughs> I eyed Inspector Hole in the face suspiciously. Either that or a ghost only I can see. <laughs> Mazel suddenly stopped laughing. I hadn't even considered that. He backed away slowly, then turned to me with a gleeful grin on his face. But that's even cooler! It was Mazel who decided we should name him Inspector Hole in the Face. The hole in the face part was fairly obvious, but the inspector part took a few days to manifest. The inspector would show up daily, his horrifying presence announced by the rising, discordant sound of a metal scraping against metal, or the slow creaking of a door opening. He'd always show us something, or show me something, rather, and he always hovered around us until we solved his riddle. He wants us to investigate, like he's an inspector or something. When he showed up, He'd always be standing next to something he wanted us to look at. 
It could be simple things, like a headless doll or a hammerhead, a toy car missing its wheels, or a toy soldier without a weapon. He'd point at it and follow us around until we found the clues he left us, then disappear into the faraway forest once we completed the task. Usually a completed task just meant making something whole again. It's like a puzzle. He wants us to finish a puzzle. I always wondered how Mazel could take it so lightly. He couldn't see Inspector Hole in the face, nor touch him. But the objects, the puzzles, were physical even to him. When I asked him about it, he just shrugged and smiled. I know, it's probably just you leaving them out there. But I don't care, it's fun all the same. This went on for a week or so, and even though I was perpetually haunted by the gruesome sight of the inspector, it was the most magical week of my life. Mazelle and I loved the enigmatic mystery of the puzzles, and we quickly became lost in the strangeness of Inspector Hole in the Face's obscure games. It was like opening a door to another world, a world where simple household items meant something more, like they were all essential parts of an ever-evolving map, once completed leading to the alluring promise of enlightenment. But all that changed the day we found the rabbit. The day started much like the others, with us roaming the faraway forest, Mazel poking me every five minutes or so, asking if I'd heard the sound of him yet. I kept saying that I hadn't, until I suddenly did. Just ahead of us, that unpleasant scraping and creaking echoing eerily through the forest. We smiled at each other and ran towards it laughing. <laughs> abruptly falling silent when we realized what Inspector Hole in the Face had brought us. Jesus, what the heck is that? Inspector Hole in the Face stood motionless, his right hand pointing directly at the mangled carcass of a white rabbit. It lay in a small pond of blood the white fur stained with patches of crimson. I immediately gagged when I saw it. But what was worse still was a look on Mazel's face. Sarah, this is messed up. Why would you do that? that that's sick. It wasn't me. I could never have done that. You know that, Mazel. But the look on his face didn't change. It was disgust, loathing, but also fear and disappointment. He slowly edged away from me, tears rolling down his face. I'd never seen him like that before, and it made me immensely sad and incredibly angry at the same time. It was him! I pointed at Inspector Hole in the face. It was the inspector! He isn't real, Sarah. You made him up. It was you all along. Just admit it. No, it wasn't! You know me, Mizelle. It wasn't me! He just stood there blinking, like he was deciding whether or not to believe me. 
I got down on my knees and cradled the poor little creature in my arms, blood dripping down my clothes. We have to bury it. It's the right thing to do. Mazel lowered his head. You're right. I know a place. Does that mean you believe me? I looked at him and sniffed. It means... He met my gaze. It means that I don't know. Mazel sauntered toward the trail, and I followed close behind, still holding the dead rabbit like a baby. I threw worried glances back at Inspector Hole in the face as we slowly made our way through the thick undergrowth, but he didn't seem to move at all, still just standing there, still pointing at the spot where the rabbit had been. Where are we going? I don't know. Mazel stopped, a worried expression on his face. I have this feeling, like I know a place. I can't explain it. Freakerson! What did I tell you? We turned around to see Freddy Purcell's aggressive figure approaching us, and Mazel quickly grabbed a big rock from the side of the trail, slinking behind me stealthily. Fred, Freddy, what are you doing here? This isn't your part of the woods. I'm looking for my sister's bunny, Freakerson. What's it to you? He suddenly stopped dead in his tracks, eyes locked on the wretched, mangled thing in my arms. I stumbled back in fear, dragging Mazel with me, dropping the dead rabbit to the ground with trembling hands. I... I can explain... It's not what it looks like. I could practically see Freddy's eyes turning red with anger as the realization slowly made its way to his conscious mind. He clenched both his fists, and without a warning, he came running towards us, screaming bloody murder. You'll die for this, Freakerson! You're just as sick as your brother was! I stumbled back into Mazelle, and we both fell to the ground. Before I could get back up, Freddy was on top of me, locking my arms down with his knees. In his right hand, he held a rock, slowly raising it above his head. In that moment, I knew I was done for. I knew this was where I was going to die. But then I saw the look on Mazelle's face. He was lying on the side of the trail, eyes wide with fear. At first I thought he was scared of Freddy, scared of me. But then he said it. You hear that? What is that? It was a sound of metal scraping against metal. A loud, unpleasant screech echoing through the forest. This time it was deafening. Omnipresent, brutal, and terrifying. Freddy didn't seem to care, though. All his focus was still targeted on me. I tried to speak, tried to warn him, 
but it was too late. A pale hand grabbed him by the throat, and he didn't even have time to scream. He was lifted into the air, and moments later I heard a sickening crunch as he was slammed into the ground with immense force. I scrambled to my feet unsteadily, only to stagger back at the sight before me. Inspector Hole in the Face was on top of the dazed Freddy, both arms raised over his horrifyingly hollow head. He turned to me slowly, the spiraling darkness of the gaping chasm ringing in my mind like a voice. If he could have, he would have smiled. Somehow I knew this. Then, and without hesitation, Inspector Hole in the Face brought both fist down into his face with such force that I could see one of Freddy's eyes popping. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Inspector Hole in the Face just kept smashing both fists down into Freddy's face for minutes. Blood and other unnameable fluids squirted all over. The squelching, gruesome noises getting louder and louder and I couldn't move an inch. I had to watch it, had to register every one of those hits, until finally there was nothing left of his face to hit, just a hollow crevice where there used to be a face. Then the inspector got to his feet, turned to Mazelle and me, bowed theatrically, and disappeared into the forest once more. saw him too, didn't you? I slumped down on the ground next to Mazelle, my head spinning, stomach churning. Yes. Yes, I saw him too. He hugged me tightly, tears streaming down his face. He was so pale, so deathly pale. I embraced him as tightly as I could, but I was starting to feel extremely lightheaded. I don't remember much else after that. Just darkness and screeching noises and swirling black holes. Harold, she's awake. Every bone in my body was hurting as I sat up in my bed. I was still wearing the same clothes, dirty and stained with blood. My head was still spinning, and it took me quite a while to gather my senses as my dad came into my room with a glass of water. Uh, what happened? You came home like this. My mother stroked my hair gently. You didn't make any sense. Crying and screaming, covered in blood and bruises. We were so worried, Sarah. So terribly worried. I gulped down the whole glass of water in one go and handed it back to my father. Inspector Hole in the Feet. He hurt him. He killed him. Oh, not another one. This has to stop, Sarah. Shut up, Harold. 
my mom pointed to the door. Leave us alone. <sighs> my father sighed again and shrugged as he left. There was this expression on his face I couldn't quite identify, like a mixture of sadness and disappointment, but also fear and worry. He isn't real, Sarah. There is no such thing as Inspector Hole in the Face. He is too! I grabbed my notebook from the nightstand, presenting to her the drawing I made of him the first time I saw him. This is how he looks. I've seen him. You have to believe me. Oh, God. A look of shock came over her face as she flinched at the sight of him. I really thought you were doing better this time. She started crying. Long, pained, convulsive sobs. I didn't know what to do, so I just held her tight in a hug. After a while, she got up and grabbed a faded box hidden in the back of my closet. It looked vaguely familiar, but I struggled to place it in my mind. That's not Inspector Hole in the face. She dried her tears and looked at me with sorrow in her eyes. She opened the box and beckoned for me to look at its content. That's your brother. Within the box were dozens of drawings of Inspector Hole in the Face, each and every one impossibly identical. No, 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 that's not my brother. I murmured, frantically going through the drawings. He can't be. He's dead. My mom just stared at me tears rolling down her face. Then she nodded softly and turned her gaze to the door, letting out an exasperated sigh. We've been over this so many times, Sarah. Your brother was a troubled boy. Very troubled. It's strange, you know. He was such a sweet boy once. I guess that's why we didn't see it refused to see it. There was a darkness in him, you see, like a cancer of the mind, of the soul. And we should have caught it, you know? There were signs, but we just didn't know how to interpret them. I stared at her blankly, not knowing how to react. I remembered my brother, didn't I? I was sure of it. There was this one boy, Freddie Purcell. You know him, a couple of years older than you. Your brother took it out on him the most. Bullied him, called him names, but also hurt him. Broke his nose once, sprained his arm, horrible stuff. Singled him out, tortured him daily. My mom lowered her head. Tears dropped from her eyes down to the floor, soon forming a small pond. He did things to animals, too. We didn't know until after, but... Your father found them in our backyard. Slaughtered and buried. We should have known, Sarah. We should have realized sooner. Helped him. 
stopped him. She took my hand and held it tightly in hers. One night, your brother snuck out. He must have woken you up. You know how that creaky door used to be. You followed him. Don't know why, but you did. I guess maybe you saw it too. Maybe you wanted to help him. She looked at me with a slight, pained smile. He went out to the Purcell farm. I guess he'd planned it for a while because he brought the hammer with him, broke the lock to their barn. You know, where they keep the rabbits. Freddy later told the police he woke up to the screeching sound of the barn door opening and snuck out to check it out. What he found inside that barn, what your brother did, Oh, God. What? What did he do? He killed them all. Every rabbit in that barn. Smashed them over the head with the hammer until the hammer broke. Freddy surprised him, but your brother was older and stronger. So they fought, rolled around in that barn until... Until what? Freddy had his father's shotgun with him. It went off. Just once. One shot. That's all it took. Blew your brother's face off. Just a giant, gaping hole. She pointed to the drawings. You must have come in soon after. Dragging your doll with you. Mr. Purcell found you hugging his body. Refusing to let go. She looked at me with a pained expression, eyes all red and puffy, lips quivering. You refused to let go? No, no, no! That's not what happened! He died in a car accident! You told me so! You refused to let go, Sarah. The doctors told us you were in denial, so when you started slipping away from us, drawn into the warm comfort of your fantasy world, we decided it was best if we didn't bring it up. It was better that you stayed there for a while. She held my face and stared directly into my eyes. There is no Inspector Hole in the face, Sarah. He's only in your head. I felt nauseous and drained. It couldn't be true. It didn't make any sense. Or did it? No, no, it didn't. I was sure of it. He was real. Mazel saw him too. He saw Inspector Hole in the face too. Oh, honey. She hugged me tightly. How many times have I told you? Mizell isn't real. He's just another imaginary friend. I pushed her away violently, my eyes now sore from all the tears, mind overloading with pain and grief and anger. He's not! He's real! Here, look! I grabbed the photo of him from my dresser and shoved it in her face. Curious, that's Mizell. It's not... That's not him. 
That's Michael, your brother, when he was your age. No, 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 no! I tore at my hair in despair. No, 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 it can't be! You couldn't pronounce his name correctly. You were so young. No, 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 no! So you just called him Mizelle? All magical summers must come to an end. Sometimes it comes naturally, just a slow descent until the darkness engulfs you completely. Other times it's abrupt, a blink of an eye. Then day becomes night. For me it was the latter. They found Freddy's body the next day, face all smashed in with a rock. There were only two sets of prints on it, Freddy's and mine. I can't really remember much from the next couple of months, but there were a lot of questions, a lot of new faces, but police and doctors, all mixed in a haze of brief, formless moments. They said I was mentally incompetent, that I couldn't understand what I did. I spent some time in a hospital, talked to a lot of experts who seemed very interested in what I had to say, but I can't really recall what we talked about. It's all a blur. I only remember clearly what the lead detective said. I wasn't supposed to hear it, you know. It was told off the books in whispers to parents and lawyers and faceless therapists. I don't think she did it. The strength required to inflict damage like that even with a rock. It takes a grown-ass man is all I'm saying. They could never prove it, of course. I don't think they even tried. But I held on to that. That was the only constant that kept me going through it all. I'm a few years older now, and I'm doing okay. We moved shortly after everything settled. We had to. Couldn't stay there anymore. Too many bad memories. Too many dead people. I go to school, play tennis, sing in the choir. Just a normal girl, you know? Nothing strange about me. Where are you going, honey? It's summer break, Mom. I rolled my eyes at my mother sticking her head out of the kitchen window. I'm just going for a walk. Okay, honey. She smiled. Be back before dinner. Whatever. I decided to follow the trail leading past the old church this morning. I always liked the look of it. So serene and peaceful. So, where are we headed? Nazelle punched me playfully in the shoulder. To the Echo Forest. We're gonna find him today, I'm sure of it. Race you to it. Nazelle winked, jogging past the church. I laughed and chased after him. 
these are beautiful times, and I'm sure you remember them yourself. There are no worries, no responsibilities, no dark thoughts. Just endless days of mystery and joy, seamlessly overlapping each other. Forever. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening to the No Sleep Files and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This audio program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media.